Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sidetrack episode 67, 5th Century Revisited, Cops and Hypatia. Thank you for listening to the History of the Papacy and Agora Podcast Network member. Today we are joined by Jonathan of the really interesting and fun History of the Cops podcast, And we talk about the 2009 movie Agora, not to be confused with the Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a movie that highly fictionalizes the events of the death of Hypatia. Jonathan and I are working on several more collaborations where we will discuss historical events that are critical to Egyptian, Roman, Papal, Christian, and generally world history from different perspectives and tie them together. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode today and the episodes to come. I think it is important to not be forced into a linear mode of history podcasting. I like revisiting times in history that I've covered previously and digging around a little bit more. I've embraced that format in this show, and it is a little different, but I think it works. A patron by the name of Fiat Joff posted a comment on Patreon saying, Just for an example, these episodes with Gary Stevens where you talk about lots of obscure topics almost randomly are truly great. Talking about obscure topics almost randomly is the way my mind works and I'm glad at least one person enjoys it too. Quickly, before we start the episode, I want to mention the Agora Podcaster of the Month, Ben Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia Podcast. Ben is definitely no stranger to this show. He is a frequent guest here. I've been a guest on his show, and we've done a number of collaborations together on other shows. I finally had the honor of meeting Ben in person at the Sound Education Conference in Boston. We shared a fine meal at a really good Vietnamese restaurant with fellow podcaster Tom Daly. The whole weekend was just a great time. You should definitely go in 2019. It's already been scheduled. It's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is really conveniently located in the northeastern United States. But if you can have the opportunity to be in the Boston area in November-ish 2019, you should definitely go. You should also listen to the Wittenberg to Westphalia Wars of the Reformation podcast. Links to Ben and Jonathan's shows can be found in the show notes. 
This intro was a little long, but you got a mini state of the podcast thrown in there too, for the price of one episode. Now, for the History of the Papacy Patreon Dip Dicks. You can learn more and become a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash papacy. There are many different levels of support, starting at just $1. We have a new Antioch member of the History of the Papacy, Bridget. So thank you so much for becoming a patron of the show. It's very much appreciated. Now, all patrons at any level will receive new episodes early and occasional bonus content along with the episodes being completely ad-free. At the Constantinople and Rome levels, you will be added to the history of the papacy diptychs, along with the Alexandria level, I might add. Constantinople, Rome, and Alexandria levels, you'll be entered into the history of the papacy diptychs list, and you, at the Constantinople and Rome level, you will be entered into a monthly book drawing to receive church history books, interesting fiction, and other great Kindle books titles. Consider joining and helping the show. Now, a huge shout-out goes to our Rome-level patron, Peter the Great. I want to thank our Constantinople-level patrons on patreon.com forward slash papacy, Sandy, Andy, Paul, Dr. Jeff, Robert, Sean, Yoren, Molly, Mary Carmen, Dapo, Brian, Stephen, and Rick. As well as our Alexandria-level patrons, Francine, Richard, Justin, Rupert, Roberto, Fiat, Joff, and Elizabeth. Thank you for listening, and I will definitely see you on our next stop on our trip through the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. So now enjoy this episode on the movie from 2009, Agora. Hi, I'm Steve, and I'm the host of the History of the Papacy podcast, and my show is a history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church, now starting to focus in on the Western Christian Church, starting at somewhere in St. Peter and going somewhere into the future. So there's a lot of episodes where I provide a lot of, I try to provide history and background and context of the, the moving parts of a very complicated organization and today I have the honor to work with Jonathan of the History of the Cops podcast. Jonathan, why don't you tell all of us about your podcast? Hello, everybody. This is Jonathan, and I am the host of the History of the Cops podcast. And I'm really glad that I have this opportunity to highlight some brief aspects of the history of the Cops and Egyptian Christianity. The Cops are the native Egyptians, and the name literally means Egyptian. The podcast that I do goes through the history of the Copts from the annexation of Egypt by Rome, through the Arab conquest of Egypt, and hopefully all the way to our modern times. The focus right now is in the period between Constantine and the Arab conquests. And in this period, the Coptic Church and its head, the Coptic Pope or the Bishop of Alexandria, plays a massive role in church politics and the formation what is now considered the theological foundation of Christianity. Today we are going to talk about a very interesting movie called Agora from 2009. It's a movie that takes place in the late 300s in Egypt, 
specifically in Alexandria. And we decided to do this movie because it really is a really good uh, mashup of a lot of the topics that I've talked about and definitely a lot of the topics that Jonathan is going to talk about and has talked about. Can you just, Jonathan, give us a quick little introduction and background to who the cops are? Yeah, so the cops are essentially the people who are living in Egypt when Augustus came and annexed Egypt. They evolved through different transitions, as you can imagine. When Christianity got introduced into Egypt by St. Mark around the 60 ADs, it took a while to, to spread and for organization to develop. But once it developed, as Alexandria being one of the cultural centers of the empire, the church hierarchy in Alexandria became very influential in church politics throughout the empire. You get a lot of the things that Christianity was built on, a lot of the theological concepts were coming out of Alexandria. For example, we have Origen. He was a se second century Coptic theologian. He was very influential in developing how we usually see the Bible and how we explain it in an allegorical, in an allegorical sense. A little bit after him, we have Athanasius, who was instrumental in articulating what we consider now the mainstream view of seeing the Trinity. Not to mention, thanks to Athanasius' effort, the Council of Nicaea ended up being the bedrock of Christian belief. Athanasius also wrote and made popular the life of St. Antony, an Egyptian monk who embodied the movement of monasticism, a movement that Egypt and the Copts had a massive influence on. After St. Athanasius and Antony came Cyril, the man who gave us the title Theodokos, or Mother of God. And it is Cyril who would take center stage today in our episode with the movie Agora. This is one of the things that I think is so awesome about podcasting is even though we're talking about a lot of the same things, you're getting all these different issues from a different perspective. So they're really, all of our podcasts aren't competing against each other. They're really complementary. Yeah, I mean, uh, like you said, that church politics and, and what what ended up becoming Christianity was a complicated story. And depending on how you approach it and what perspective you see it through, there are so many things in between that uh, can be missed only from one side of the story. So as I, we were saying, we're going to look at this really fascinating time through the focus of a movie called Agora from 2009. It starred Rachel Weiss and Oscar Isaac, uh, among others. But those were the two really main roles. Can you tell us who were the other major characters in this story? Yeah, so I, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Bob Searle is a major character in the movie. He is mostly remembered as a theologian today, a doctor in the church by the Roman Bibisi. And for the Copts, he is the pillar of faith. But he was also a 5th century bishop of a major city in the Roman Empire. So he was as much of a politician as he was a theologian. His local political actions and the intrigue surrounding those actions is a big part of the movie Agora. But really specifically, the movie looks at the life and death of Hypatia. Hypatia was an Alexandria philosopher. She was also a teacher and a politician. Or more accurately, a political advisor to the prefect of Alexandria. Then we have the prefect of Alexandria himself, who was the appointed governor of Egypt from Constantinople. In the 5th century, the lines between church and palace were blurry. As a result, actual power in Alexandria was contested between governor and bishop. In the movie, Hybesha is shown as what we consider today a scientist. And then the conflict presented in the movie was between the scientist Hybesha 
and the intolerant and violent Christian bishops of Alexandria, Theophilus <coughs> and Dancerol before. Theophilus and Dancerol. By the end of the movie, Hypatia essentially proves that the earth is a sphere. And then, because of her struggle with Cyril, she gets brutally lynched by a Christian mob. So basically what we will do is uh, we will analyze the movie from a historical perspective. A big picture view of how these characters in Alexandria are portrayed in the movie versus how things were in a historical sense. Yeah, I think this is important because um, if anybody's heard like some of the other, I've talked with other people about movies. I'm not one who likes to get bogged down in the details of like, oh, um, Cyril wasn't wearing the right sandal at that time or something like that. But I don't know about you, but um, we'll definitely talk about this. I think this movie doesn't do justice to the feeling of that time period. As I've read it, um, it tries to make more of a modern point on a historical story which I think is kind of worse than missing a few facts when you're trying to, say, put um, the filmmakers, what he thinks about things that are happening maybe in modern times. I mean, modern even saying since the 1500s, like modernity. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the movie creators, they profess that their movie, while based on real events, is dramatized and some elements of it were fiction. But the real 5th century Alexandria, uh, which in my opinion was just as interesting and dramatic as the movie, uh, was more or less a battleground between church and state. In the movie, it is portrayed as a battleground between pagans or Christians or science and rational thought versus um, intolerant uh, Christian beliefs, which is a battle way ahead in the future. Like you said, it, it tries to but a modern struggle and fit it into a place where it did not belong. Um, for the record also, the movie was not very popular, at least where I'm speaking from, but it did get a critic choice designation from the New York Times. So it's worth looking into. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we're not doing this as um, analysis of the movie as a work of art, but we are analyzing it as history podcasters for a movie that professes its pseudo-historical nature. Let's set the stage a little bit of what was going on at this particular time in Alexandrian history. Yeah, so the movie starts around the end of the 4th century, um, 390s AD. Uh, Theodosius is the sole emperor of the Eastern and the Western Roman Empire, and the empire as a whole was quickly transforming into a Christian empire. Egypt, for various factors, was a bit ahead from the rest of the empire, especially in the Western half. And it was, at this point, essentially a Christian land. Bagans were still around, of course, both in the rural fringes of the country and as a quickly dwindling minority in Alexandria. But like I said, the portrayal of Bagan versus Christian battleground was not accurate. Uh, in the movie, Bagans were much more numerous and influential than the reality reflected. For example, in one of the earliest scenes of the movie, a monk in Alexandria walks on fire, and as a result, numbers of pagans convert, including Hybatia's slave. This scene essentially misses the nature of Alexandria at this point. What were the demographics of pagan and Christian at this point in Alexandria? Yeah, so basically there wouldn't be any longer a crowd of pagans who would be impressed by this miracle. The vast majority of these pagans were already converted. 
The fire walking incidents, if it happened at all, it would have been between rival Christian sects, uh, not between pagans and Christians. This battle was already clearly won. Um, Robert Bagnell, easily the leading expert in late antiquity Egypt, estimate that about 85 to 90 percent of the population of Egypt at this point was entirely Christian. Also, as a part of this pagan versus Christian dynamic, in another scene, Hypatia is seen as teaching astronomy to a clearly interested group of students. And then, in a very modern application of the scientific theory, she developed the hypothesis and then tests that via scientific experiment. This really misses the point of who and what Hypatia did. Hypatia was above all a philosopher. She was not a scientist. That sort of structural scientific thought was almost a thousand years ahead of its time. Fifth century philosophy, the type that Hypatia did, was also very different than what we think of today as philosophy. Fifth century philosophy was more or less speculative of theology and shared very little with the popular paganism that we would think of. I guess I probably should have said this a little bit earlier, but we are definitely going to give spoilers throughout this discussion of Agora. So if you do want to watch the movie and not have it spoiled, you should definitely watch the movie, then uh, listen to this episode. But then again, you might want to listen to this episode, then watch the movie and have a little bit more of context for it. So either way works. Yeah, I would say... um... You probably maybe want to listen to my podcast for around episode 20 to 24. It goes in a very detailed background on the information of this period. And then watch the movie. Otherwise, you'll get lots of bad ideas. Yeah, basically listen to everything and watch the movie too. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, like you were saying that this the movie kind of plays with the idea of like the scientific method and scientific theory. What was the gap between Christians and pagans in terms of academics and scholarship? The movie portrays it as the Christians were ignorant, superstitious, um, almost boobs, and the pagans were uber, uber sophisticates. How does that jive with the historical record? It doesn't really jive at all. Um, on an intellectual level, Hibatia and the Christian bishops of the time would have received similar education and pursued different but academically similar scholarship. The, they would have sought in exactly the same way and used the same arguments to convince their followers. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, there is some indirect evidence that Hybatia and Theophilus, the bishop that was before Cyril, they enjoyed mutual respect and even friendship. And we know for sure that another influential bishop was one of Hybatia's students and they enjoyed lifelong friendship. But I think we will get to that bishop, Bishop Sinesius, in a bit. For now, I would also like to highlight that Hybatia, in addition to being a philosopher, she taught what we would think of today as geometry and mathematics. But in her classroom, as a philosopher, she would have emphasized man's search for the divine and what it means to live an ethical life more than anything else. In the very same astronomy scene that we discussed earlier will get introduced to two men who will become very influential as the movie goes on, Orestes and Synesius. In the movie, Orestes is a pagan who then converts to Christianity and becomes the prefect of Alexandria. Synesius, on the other hand, is a Christian who ends up being a bishop for a city in what is now eastern Syria. 
Jonathan, can you give us some detail about Orestes and um, Synesius, who they were in the historical record, and maybe a little bit of uh, how they were portrayed in the film? Yes, um, the movie portrayal of Orestes is complete fiction. There is no evidence that Orestes ever studied in Alexandria uh, or under Hybatia. When he is introduced in the historical record, he is a Christian prefect of Alexandria sent from Constantinople. When he arrives, he can clearly see that the Bishop of Alexandria has accumulated immense political power, and he sets out to reverse that trend. In that pursuit, he recruits Hybatia as an influential member of her community and uses her influence in the city to check the influence of Cyril. The portrayal of Synesius was a little bit more accurate, but misses a big point. In the historical record, he was a very interesting bishop to be sure. He studied under Hybatia and stayed in Constantinople a bit in the service of the palace before going back to Alexandria. There, he was recruited by Theophilus to serve as a bishop for a major city in Cyrene, like I said, modern-day eastern Libya. He became a friend of Hybatia throughout their lifetime, and there is nothing in the record that there was any conflict between them. He died before Hybatia, so the movie portraying him as essentially abandoning her to be lynched by the mob in the end is fiction. Yeah, that really seems to change the whole narrative arc of the movie and of what you might perceive happened historically. That's a big difference. Synesius's battles were, just like Cyril, was the governor of his city, not teachers and philosophers. Before he died, Synesius had lived a very interesting life. Before he died, he excommunicated the governor of his city and personally led a local militia against barbarian raid. He was a fascinating man, and it's a bit of a shame that the movie portrayed him as some weak, well, conflicted bishop instead of the strong statesman that he was. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everyone. I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free 
plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP230605 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP230605 and I really do recommend you give this product a try and I'll talk to you next time. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. Wars made the United States independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Hi, I'm James Early, host of the Key Battles of American History podcast. In each episode, I discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. Yeah, he really was a great character, and I read a little bit about him. He had never really um, stirred my interest to do any more reading on him. Is he somebody who might kind of tangentially you might get into in your podcast a little? Yeah, I did. I uh, uh, He technically was not a cop. He was a Libyan uh, or a Greek Libyan, but... I liked him so much that I uh, I dedicated almost like a half of episode to him. I believe it should be in uh, between the 15 and the 20 episode. I forgot the exact number. But uh, but uh, he was such an influential bishop of his time. And he was so different than um, what you would expect a bishop would be that I felt compelled to include him in the narrative of my podcast. Yeah, Libya was such a fascinating place. It was kind of in, in between the East and West and North Africa, like the um, Carthage area that was really a lot different than Egypt. There's a lot of history there that doesn't um, get nearly as much t- uh, covering as it really should. Yeah, yeah. And, and what we would see now as Eastern and Western Libya, like you said, Eastern Libya was very close to Alexandria and was considered the Eastern half of the empire. But then it was like a big desert gap between Eastern Libya and Western Libya. And then and then after that, you'll see Carthage, and that's all in the Western half of the empire. And, you know, one part spoke Greek and the other part spoke uh, Latin. And when, when we get, when I get to my podcast, I'm not sure if you got into it, um, between the split in the church and Chalcedon, you essentially had very complete different pictures between what is now Eastern Libya and the Western half of uh, Africa, which is, I think it was very interesting. Yeah. I've talked a bit about it, but I, I kind of sense that we have another uh, collaboration possibility yeah. there. Yeah. I, I think so too. Now getting back to the movie a little bit, the, uh, there was a, a scene about the attack and destruction of the temple of Serapis. And this is a powerful part of the movie. What happened during this event? Yeah, so this part is probably my biggest disappointment with this movie because it propagated a very popular myth about the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. So in the movie, uh, first I think it would be helpful if we if we go through what happened in the movie versus what happened in the historical record. In the movie, Theophilus, uh, the Bishop of Alexandria, publicly mocks items of pagan religious significance. This leads a pagan mob to attack Christians, and then the Christians retaliate and corner the pagan mob in a temple, in the temple of Serapis. After a standoff, where in the movie the pagans are portrayed as heroic scholars discussing astronomical concepts, 
who are stuck in a temple and in, a, in its library, while outside there's a violent Christian mob ready to attack them. Um, the standoff is resolved when Sidosius, the emperor, orders that the temple be destroyed. The pagan group then escapes, and then the mob goes in and destroys the temple, and crucially, for me at least, the library. The facts here on the surface are kind of correct, but there is lots of big points missing. First, the pagan mob were not some intellectual scientific guys. These were, just like the Christian mob, violent murderers. The Hypatia-type intellectuals were not defending their heritage. They stayed away from that kind of action. The primary sources for this period also state very clearly that the pagan mob, when they were cornered, they took some Christian hostage to try to negotiate escaping. But then when it didn't seem that there's going to be any negotiations, they systemically killed their hostage. Second, and I think this is more important, there is absolutely no evidence that Hypatia had anything to do with the Temple of Serbis. She was not this kind of a pagan. She probably even found the temple worship as something that the ignorant and uneducated pagans do. The crazy thing is that a lot of people miss. Hybatia taught her students that there was one God, which they could know through meditation and study. So she was not uh, really far away from Christianity. Yeah, that's what I th always thought was interesting is that that um, platonic philosophy, I don't know at this point is a Neoplatonism or Middle Platonism, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's some sort of Platonism. Yeah. Really, it, Christianity borrowed from it, and then Platonism, they were borrowed. They really, they were very closely linked together. And a lot of the worship of, like, the gods was starting to be what where we get the word pagan from, meaning, like, country bumpkin. Yeah, I mean, uh, essentially, uh, that pagan traditional worship of animal sacrifice and going to the temple was being was being abandoned by both those philosophers and Christians. Uh, but yeah, she was a Neoplatonist philosopher, which, as you alluded to, would be way too complicated to get into now, what is a Platonist versus what is a Neoplatonist. But the main point is the influence of, new, of that philosophy on Christianity and the Christianity influence on that philosophy was surprising, and there is a lot of a lot, a lot of points that overlap between the two. In all likelihood, she stayed away from that temple, as any Christian would have done, not defended with her life, as the movie portrays. I forgot to mention, but I would want to emphasize now that the destruction of the temple was not a crazy mob destroying everything in their way. No, it was done by an imperial order from Theodosius himself to be led and supervised by the prefect of Alexandria. Pope Suophilus certainly was present, and after a few months is requested and was granted that the temple be converted into a church. But he was far from the extremist figure ready to destroy all knowledge, as he seems to be in the movie. Uh, back to the library, so the Temple of Serbis had a library attached to it which the movie shows as the mob eagerly destroying. So the popular myth that I said earlier is that this library is the Library of Alexandria, and Suophilus and the Christian mob destroyed the famous Library of Alexandria. But here's the thing, these are completely two different events about two different buildings. Some historians even speculate that the library attached to the temple may have survived. 
as the destruction was not mob-led, but it was orderly and organized. The movie says in a roundabout way that the Library of Alexandria wasn't quite what it used to be in the late 300s, early 400s, when this movie takes place. What do we know about the famous library at this point? Yeah, so there is this big perception out there that there was one big event happened and destroyed the books in the library. The knowledge was lost and the world slipped into the dark ages. But the reality is a lot more complicated. The true value of the library was essentially that it was a government-sponsored learning institution. Knowledge was not only preserved, which is great, but new knowledge was also produced, which is even better. The loss of the financial patronage of the Ptolemies when the Romans annexed Egypt was the first and a really big hit in that respect. But the library still survived because there was lots of interest from students and that provided financial resources. The next hit was the shifting of the political elite of the empire from purely classical Greek learning to a more Christian learning. This was especially prominent in Egypt. With the gradual loss of interest from the library students, it came a gradual loss of the prestige of the library. We do not know exactly when the library ceased to exist, but an Arab historian writing 500 years later after the Arab, um, after the Arab came to Egypt had this to say. So in his writing, the conquering general of the Arab, uh, a man named Amr ibn al-As, when he took Alexandria, he wrote to the caliph asking what to do with what remains of the library. And he received this reply. If the contents of the library is accordance to the books of Allah, we may do without them. For in that case, the book of Allah more than suffice. But if on the other hand, they contain matters not in accordance with the book of Allah, there can be no need to preserve them. Proceed then and destroy them. Supposedly, then the books were distributed to the public basses to feed the fires that warmed the water. Ibn al-Kifti, the historian who supplied this story, wrote that it took six months to burn all these books. Now, he wrote 500 years later, and there was all kind of issues, so this story might be legendary. But the main point is the library physical destruction was not as important as the loss of the knowledge spirit that pervaded Alexandria and the Ptolemies and the early Roman period. Whatever the case, as the movie portrays, the movie portrayer of a mob led by a bishop destroying libraries is not supported by any historical evidence. After the destruction of the Temple of Serapis, um, the movie jumps about 25 years in the future to the early reign of Pope Cyril. For dramatic purposes, so, none of the characters have aged. But naturally, as you would expect, the historical landscape has changed significantly during those years. The powerful Sidosius was dead, and he was replaced by his two much weaker sons. Theophilus also passes away, and replaced by his nephew Cyril. When he became the Bishop of Alexandria, he was relatively young, around 36, very well educated, and was a formidable political will. Wasn't that how the popes of Alexandria during that period, there weren't very many of them for a really long uh, span of time, meaning that um, they each had a very long reign for the most part, that they were passing from uncle to nephew? 
Yeah, I mean, these years were essentially the golden age of the cults. That it was Athanasius, then a couple of minor uh, bishops of Alexandria who did not reign long, and then Theophilus and Cyril. Uh, in between Theophilus and Cyril, the bishop of Alexandria essentially became the de facto governor of Egypt. And the church became, um, instead of being a powerful institution with somewhat limited financial resources, to being a very powerful political institution with huge financial resources. And we can thank Theophilus and Cyril for that. After them comes Dioscorus, and the whole thing kind of falls apart. But that's, that's another story for a different day. When Cyril became Pope, even so, he was well expected um, as the nephew of Theophilus to take the office after him. It was actually a very contested affair between him and uh, Timothy, the Archdeacon of Alexandria. And that kind of started the whole conflict between Orestes and Cyril. Because the prefect and the garrison of the city supported Timothy. But Cyril had strong monastic support. And in the end, he became the Coptic Pope after three days of rioting and violence. This event is skipped over in the movie. Um, so if you watch the movie, you're not going to know anything that happened. But it really formed the genesis of the political conflict between Orestes and Cyril that ultimately took the life of Hypatia. So as part of that struggle, Orestes excluded Cyril and his Christian proxies from his administration and relied instead on the Jewish and the pagan community of Alexandria, which Hypatia was an influential member of. The Jewish community from Alexandria was a really par important part of this movie, and they were really, even from before the time of Jesus, going back into the Ptolemy era, were a very important and influential part of Alexandria. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about them and how they fit into this really complicated situation of Greeks and pagans and Christians and Copts. The Jewish history in Alexandria has two distinct periods. The first period was um, when the Romans came and there was, and before Christianity really spread. And in that period, there was lots of conflicts between um, Greeks, the Greeks of Alexandria and the Jews of Alexandria. Both of them were essentially fighting who's going to rule Egypt in, um, instead of the, like, you know, as a proxy for the Romans. That kind of ended with the Jewish-Romans War, and by 115, 117 AD, essentially the Jewish community was completely extinguished in Egypt. But over the years, Alexandria as a major commercial center, a lot more Jews start coming in. By the late 4th century, early 5th century, Many Jews started coming back in Alexandria, and they were starting to form a community again. But this was nothing like the old, powerful community that um, was one-third of Alexandria at some point. These guys were mostly Syrian immigrants who were uh, mostly merchants, and they had one quarter of the city. And essentially, they were under a lot of pressure from the Roman administration because, as we mentioned before, the emperor was rapidly becoming a Christian. So in the movie, um, almost out of nowhere, um, Christian fanatics, the Barabolani, which we will get to in a bit, attacked the Jews for no reason whatsoever. And as a result, the Jews retaliate and set up a trap for the Christian in the city and kill a few. Cyril then goes ahead with the help of the Barabolani 
and expelled the Jewish community out of Alexandria, plundering their houses and positions in the process. In the movie, in addition to completely skipping over the political background, which made attacking the Jewish community silly, um, they also skipped the, a very important event that was the spark for these events. See, in the historical record, the whole thing started when Orestes decided to communicate a secret edict only to the Jewish community in the city. And he did that because they had their own Sabbath theater shows that only Jews attended. But Cyril knew about the edict, and a Christian agent managed to sneak into the theater to try and find out what was the edict about. This sort of thing was typical Alexandrian intrigue, and it happened all the time. What were those um, those theater plays uh, on the Sabbath? Were they liturgical, or were they entertainment? Yeah, they were mostly, I mean, they were entirely entertainment. And uh, the theaters, as all the, the, all the major centers of the empire, the theater and the hippodrome were essentially where any all the where public gathering can take place. And um, in Alexandria, there was a few theaters that were known to be for the Jews, and the Jews went on Saturday and enjoyed a show in there. And um, Orestes took advantage of that by um, communicating certain edicts only to them. But obviously, Cyril wanted to know what these edicts are. So that's when he sent uh, his agent. So did this actually happen, this whole um, situation of Orestes giving the this, this secret order to Jews of Alexandria could do this certain type of play on the Sabbath? Did this happen historically? Yeah, I mean, the conflict between Orestes and Cyril was very real and serious. Both men did their best to undermine each other and to know what the other person was doing. I mean, in the historical record, the agent was um, was exposed by the by the crowd, and they knew that he was an agent of Cyril. So Orestes arrested him and then tortured him. This obviously did not make Cyril very happy, and he blamed the Jewish community. So he gathered their leaders and essentially told them, if this sort of thing ever happened again, he would kick them out of the city. Uh, which makes you think that you know Cyril is essentially saying. Um, I am in control of Alexandria, not the prefect. If I want you, to, if I want to kick you out of the city, I will be able to kick you out of the city. So at this point, um, the the Jews set up the trap, and um, while there is no direct evidence that Orestes was involved, I will probably um, venture and say that they were encouraged by Orestes, who did not think Cyril was capable of um, kicking them out of the city and was essentially calling his bluff. Cyril was not bluffing so. After the trap and the death of a few Christians, uh, the next day, he took actions against the Jewish community. Also, there is a point of academic debate if he really managed to kick all of them out or just their influential leaders. Uh, The point here that I don't want to mess in the details is that the political atmosphere of Alexandria was a very important factor and what seemed like random late antiquity versus Jewish versus Christian conflict. Uh, another point that I don't want to miss um, is the differentiation between the Barabolani 
or the guild of the hospital transporters. And monks and a mob. These are very three different groups that the movie completely misses, which really misses uh, the big picture of how Alexandria was. Yeah, that's what I thought that um, the movie did a lot of that, where it would mix up like the Parbolani and the monks, who were really very different groups. And also maybe it tried to set the stage of this piling on of the Christians that they're anti-scientific, they're anti this, they're anti-Semitic, they're like anti-everything. And it's really trying to very clearly portray, it's almost like the old West where the, you know, the black hatted uh, cowboys versus the Lone Ranger wearing the white hat. It was almost that simplistic. Yeah. I mean, they, they did a lot of simplifying. But like like you said in the movie, all Christian fanatics are lumped together and as one monolithic group working with the same worldview and motivation, um, that the Barabulani and the monks were not the same. Uh, in the movie, I mean, but the Barabulani and the monks were the same. Both were violent. Both follow Cyril's commands as a loyal army would. And both are very fanatical in their views. The reality is that Barabulani and the monks were very different. The Barabulani started as a guild to transport the sick and the dying throughout the city. But by the time of Cyril, ended up being more or less the Bishop of Alexandria, private militia. They got, they got beta salary, and their job was to enforce the will of the bishop. So this could be the confiscation of a church used by a heretical sect, or, for example, providing muscle in the conflict with the Jews. So as a private militia, their motivation varied. But generally speaking, it was a job that they get paid for, and they essentially followed directions. These guys were between 600 and 1,000 at the most, a respectable number but nothing that would ever challenge the garrison of Alexandria or even attempt to quell a riot. Monks, on the other hand, were very independent, and uh, they almost never followed the direction of anyone. They respected Cyril, but on the ground, they did whatever they thought that their duty before God is, even if Cyril did not necessarily approve. Uh, almost no monks lived in Alexandria. The vast majority of the monks were at a considerable distance from the city. Of course, they could travel there if events called for that, but generally they stayed away from Alexandria. In addition to the Barabulani and the monks, we have the mob of Alexandria. These guys were unemployed, urban youths who had lots of time in their hands, and they were... They were always a part of the history of Alexandria, and really, no one could control them. The Barabolani and Cyril could rile these guys up, but once they get going, no one can stop them, including the garrison, without lots of bloodshed anyway. The usual policy was to let them run and tire themselves out. Were the Parabolani at this point trained as a militia? Like, could they have stood up against the Roman army that's the official um, army of the city? They were not trained as an army. They were more or less trained as um, a private 
security guard, so to speak. They could not stand up to the garrison in Alexandria, numerically speaking, even if they were trained. But um, they were not trained in this way. These guys were also um, unemployed Alexandrians who uh, needed financial support. And then so the church took them under their wing and said, hey, you can do this job for us, transporting the sick and the dying, and then you'll get a salary. And that eventually evolved to a group of guys who Cyril can direct to do Pacific events. Before we get into the climax of the movie, you've painted a picture that Cyril is setting up a parallel government structure to the Romans. And it's that um, it's almost that the civil government is even tilting towards Cyril's control. Is that accurate at this point that they are or is Cyril still mostly religious and the government still government? Like there is a separation of palace and state at this point. There was no the, the concept of a separation of palace and state would be crazy if you tell it to Cyril or even to Orestes. Um, the, the emperor was the head of the state and the church, as far as the eastern half of the empire were concerned, um, Cyril saw himself as the ultimate say in all things that goes in Egypt, whatever they are civil, secular, or religious. And there is actually an episode that I think um, in the movie where he and um, Orestes try to reconcile, and essentially Cyril asks him to submit to him. And that at the time was a completely reasonable request because everybody including the emperor was under the belief that if the heretics and the sinners were not part of the empire then that would um, equal political success and success at governing the empire and that is was not just Cyril by the way even after Cyril one of the ways that the government in Constantinople tried to control Egypt was by giving the Bishop of Alexandria official civil authority. And the eve of the conquest of the Arabs, the prefect of Alexandria was the Bishop of Alexandria and also the general in charge of the armies in Alexandria. So he was essentially a supreme leader of all of Egypt, um, religious, military, and government. And that's really cool. That's a theme that you see happening in a lot of other parts of the former or the collapsing Roman Empire in the West, maybe not so much in um, other parts, but that's a, it is an interesting development in the Roman government system and the 500s and the 600s. Yeah, uh, I mean, and it was also, I mean, Egypt had its also its local problems because, as I kind of alluded to, the church hierarchy would be split. And uh, Egyptians would would want their own bishop, and uh, Constantinople would want its own bishop. So essentially, um, that shadow government that you spoke of still continued to exist, but um, even after so, but now it was official shadow church government and shadow civil government. Versus in Cyril, he was trying to be the de facto uh, last word in the matter person without specifically um, asking officially for it. He would like to have that prefect of Alexandria under him. Yeah, and there'll be a lot of other really fun and interesting controversies along the way that we'll, 
both of our podcasts will talk about, and maybe we will do a collaboration on. But we've gone through a lot of setup about the really complicated situation, and we've arrived at the climax of the movie. What's going on now? Yeah, so the climax of the movie is the actual death of Hibatia. So in the movie,、um, the expulsion of the Jews bring, brings Cyril and Orestes into direct conflict. In the movie again, Cyril forces Orestes to come to church, where he reads a passage from the scripture saying, "Women should be meek, silent, and not teach men." He demands that Orestes kneel before the holy book. Which Orestes refuses to do. The Christians there then get riled up, and a monk named Ammonius throws a stone that hits Orestes. Orestes guards then arrest the the monk, and he's、uh, tortured and then killed. At this juncture in the movie, Cyril strongly hints that Hibatia is a problem that needs to go away. The Barbulani get the hint. They capture Hibatia from the street,、uh, bring her to the formal temple of Serapis, now a church, strip her naked, and then her slave, who we met, who, who we met earlier in the movie, smothers her until she either faints or dies. Then the Barabbasi follow up by stoning her lifeless body. Here in this in this sequence of events, the movie is very unfair towards Cyril. And essentially portrays his, and essentially portrays him as some sort of a supervillain who's in complete control of the events. The facts, as presented in the historical records, are a lot more complicated. In the historical record, the struggle between Orestes and Cyril was always in the forefront. Essentially, after the Jewish expulsion incidents, Orestes sends a report highly critical of Cyril to Constantinople. Bob Cyril also does the same, and gives his version of events. But at the same time, he reaches out to Orestes to see if they can come to an agreement. They agree to a meeting, and in there, Cyril extends the Bible to Orestes to kiss it. And this is what I'm talking about—the dynamic between church and state. This was a very symbolic act where the government of Alexandria, personified by Orestes. Will submit to the church and God, personified by Cyril. Orestes refuses, and then the relationship spirals out of control. Five hundred monks, completely on their own, travel to Alexandria to demonstrate to demonstrate their displeasure with Orestes. This is when the stoning incidents take place, and then once a monk. Throws a stone at Orestes. Orestes、uh, arrests him, tortures him, and、um, essentially the monk dies. Cyril uses this incident to try to make Ammonius, the monk who died, a martyr. But then the moderate elements of the church essentially rebels against Cyril and pushes back, and、uh, and Cyril could not make him a martyr. So now we see that Cyril has completely lost control of the situation. On one hand, he has the martyrs of the church not given in to his demands to make Ammonius a martyr, and on the other hand, the more extremist elements, like the monks who traveled to Alexandria, are completely acting on their own, and Cyril cannot control them. The point here from all of this is that Hibatia was not a central focus of the conflict, and Cyril was not an all-powerful supervillain out to get her. 
he was trying to get his flock online, so to speak, and he was feeling badly. Unfortunately, as Hybesha was an influential figure of the city and a close political ally to Orestes, she was well known to Cyril, but to him, Orestes, the Christian governor, was the strict, not paganism, and definitely not scientific inquiry. Yeah, and there's so much interesting background on Cyril and things that were going on theologically and politically outside of Egypt. This is all in the backdrop of the Nestorian controversy, writings, Pope Leo of Rome. There's a lot, there's so much going back and forth that's even outside of this situation that Cyril has as, um, you know, that Cyril's involved in. Yeah, Cyril, he, uh, he is known as the villain of face and a doctor of church for, uh, for good reason. He has another battle about 10 to 15 years from his battle with Orestes where he essentially uh, transforms the church and becomes what I like to call is the orthodox standard, where whenever someone has an idea or a formula, everybody would go back to Cyril and say, hey, what did Cyril say about this? Uh, and it was like that for a long time, in the East at least. Uh, and even when, uh, when there was a schism in the church, both sides said, what we say is what Cyril said. Even so, they were saying two different things. So yeah, his theological battles are uh, are much, much deeper and even more interesting than um, this Orestes battle. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Oriental Orthodox, any of those Christianities today, and I mean, even a lot of Protestantism, the stamp of Cyril is enormous on all of Christianity pretty much today, even up to today. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, there's only one denomination or church who does not think highly of Cyril. But everybody else, uh, Cyril to them is um, is a saint and uh, an excellent theologian. Hypatia, this was the time in the movie, she's almost not even that important in the movie. Her story is a side story of her uh, discovering that the sun is the center of the solar system and that the planets don't go through a circle, but an uh, oval or ellipse shape. How does she get back involved in this whole situation of Cyril and Orestes and the highly charged atmosphere of Alexandria? Yeah, so she was, in addition to her job as a teacher and a philosopher, she was also a political advisor of Orestes, and Orestes essentially used her influence in the Bigan community to get some foothold in Alexandria because he could not rely on any of the Christians there because of the influence of Cyril. She quickly earned the scorn of the mob because she was a public figure in the camp of Orestes who just happened to refuse to kiss the Bible. And if the mob could not get to Orestes then she would be the next best thing. So essentially, um, a Christian mob led by a man named Peter attacked Hybatia as she was being driven in her carriage. She was then dragged to the main church of Alexandria, uh, the formal temple of the cult of the Caesars. Uh, she was stripped, then stoned to dust, and then burned. But again, I would like to differentiate here between the mob, the monks, and the Barabulani. This was the mob, an element of Alexandria that no one could control. Have the Barabolani been involved, 
Cyril would most have definitely been removed from his position by the emperor. But the historical consensus here, and I'm going to directly quote um, Stephen J. Davis from his book, The Early Coptic Babacy, quote, while Cyril may have been culpable for cultivating an atmosphere of unrest and religious intolerance among the Alexandrian Christian populace, there is no direct or reliable evidence that he ordered a mafia-style head and hibation. End quote. Now, as I alluded to, when this happened, this was a big deal in the empire. The palace in Constantinople was involved, and at least initially, before all the facts got out, Cyril was under intense pressure. The Barabulani number was limited, and uh, their control was removed from Cyril and given to the prefect. But really, once things calmed down and everybody kind of knew the facts, the Barabulani control was given back to Pope Cyril, and even he was able to get their number increased to 600. Yeah, that's really, it's um, fascinating to say, and it, it just can't be stressed enough that there were so many different factions in Alexandria, and to say that this was like a hit on Hypatia just doesn't doesn't give what the real situation was. This was sort of my biggest disappointment with the movie, that it completely looked at the struggle in Alexandria from a European Renaissance era lens. It was almost the story of uh, Galileo and the Roman Bibisi, not Hypatia and Cyril. The essential struggle in the movie between science and church has very little to do with 5th century Alexandria. The struggle between uh, scientific inquiry and the solar system was almost a thousand years later and in Europe. The struggle in Alexandria was between church and state, a political struggle between two powerful men who saw their world differently. I feel like the movie almost got there, but then the narrative of long-bearded Middle Eastern religious fanatics destroying civilization was just too tempting to pass up. As far as I know, um, not a single Coptic scholar was consulted in the movie, which is a shame. Um, a Coptic voice would have greatly enriched the narrative of the movie, as well as exposed some of its blind spots, where the historical struggles of the West was sort of forced in a world where they did not belong. Uh, I'm sorry if I sound too harsh. Again, I'm not evaluating the movie as a work of art. Rather, I'm a history podcaster looking at it from a historical point of view. And I feel like the events as they happen in the historical record can't stand on their own until a fascinating movie that would sell. A story, at least for the cops, uh, still playing out to this day, uh, where the, the struggle between church and state is something that always in the background. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say you're, you're, you've been too harsh at all. I think, like you said, in a lot of ways, it was forcing not the narrative that happened in the uh, late 300s, early 400s. I mean, um, we should really make it clear, Hypatia did not discover that the I mean, the heliocentric view of the world was actually fairly common back then. It was known. Yeah. And yeah. the study that um, the planets went in ellipses is just not something that she actually discovered. Yeah, that was not his job. She was not a scientist by any means. She was above all a philosopher. If you come up to her and ask her, hey, Hibatia, what do you do for a living? She would say, I'm a philosopher. 
she taught as well. That was her part-time job, so to speak. And then what got her killed is her political involvement was Orestes. Um, but um, that scientific part of it was did not exist. And like you said, the Greeks of Alexandria knew for sure um, that um, the heliocentric model um, it was it was a fact for almost uh, 200 years at this point. And then these kind of facts kind of got forgotten about and not discussed in the, in, the, in the medieval Egypt and medieval Europe. And then they got rediscovered again in the Renaissance. They had, and there was a bit of a struggle there for to have the church accept it. But this is not uh, the, the 300, 400 Alexandria at all. Yeah, I think that's, that's to me where the movie just really it, it missed and i would have loved to have had a story that focused in on what was going on there and hypatia could have been still been the central focus of a movie that really told a a more interesting story yeah i she could she would have been she's a very interesting person the story is fascinating like you said and this is the only part of the what was going on in alexandria the back and forth theological um, discussions and uh, the politics of church governing, so to speak, you can make like a whole podcast on it. I mean, I am doing one on it. So, so there, if if it were ever a movie a little bit more accurate in a historical sense, I am hundred percent confident it would have been a very interesting story to tell. It's interesting. There was a few things that we had talked about. And one that um, it didn't really come up in our discussion because um, one of the main characters name was Davis and he was originally Hypatia's slave. We only got into that a little bit because he was a completely fictional character. But I thought that they kind of papered over the fact that Hypatia had a series of slaves and they um, really painted her first slave, Davis, in a really bad light. But he was a slave but why are we going to convict him because he was a little resentful of hypatia yeah i mean uh, which was funny too because they're looking at the whole struggle from you know a modern eye but they're almost like normalized slavery like oh yeah this guy is a slave and he's trying to uh to uh, get away from that and now he's painted as a bad guy for trying not to be a slave but again like you said this is a completely fictional um Egypt, for actually, for the most part, uh, even so, slavery was um, part of the Roman Empire. Egypt, for the most part, did not know slavery. Um, in uh, very elite Alexandrians, they had slaves, but outside of that, slavery as an institution was not known in Egypt. Uh, this is for various reasons. Part of it is the economic model of working the land uh, did not necessarily need slaves because there were tenant farmers there who were on the land generation after generation who would stay in the land without having to force them as slaves. Yeah, and there was that other part in the movie where she actually made the discovery of the um, elliptical path of the planets around the sun. And she had a slave who actually helped her figure out this model i don't remember them in the movie actually saying he was a slave the only way you would really know he was a slave is that he wore a collar that if you knew that that's the type of collar that slaves wore back then 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the portrayal of slavery, like I said, there is there are so many big points that we had to go through that the, the portrayal of slavery sounds like a, um, not not the hell that, you know, we would stand on to, to talk about in this movie. But you're right, is that they completely normalized slavery, uh, which would have been fine if in many provinces outside of Egypt, but in Egypt, you know, uh, slavery was kind of like, uh, yeah, w- this is not really something that is that common. Again, Hypatia was an elite Alexandrian, so, so it, it is reasonable that she would have a slave. But uh, the chances that she did not. What are some things that are coming up in your podcast, events that you're really looking forward to discussing? Yeah, so right now, um, we are actually just finished with the events of Chalcedon. And uh, for the Cots, uh, first, there will be a completely different perspective um, than any uh, other podcast because the big losers of Chalcedon, so to speak, were the Cots. And uh, to this day, the Cots do not consider Chalcedon as a legitimate council, yet it is one of the main councils that um, all other churches consider to be legitimate. So this story... And Dioscorus role. Now, Dioscorus is usually painted as some bad guy, um, but he was also a very, you know, complicated figure. So um, this is by far one of the highlights of the history of the Copts. Um, the events of Chalcedon and the immediate aftermath and the transformation f- uh, of Egyptian Christianity to become the expressive identity of the Copts, who do it say, I am part of the Coptic Church, which sets me apart from the wider Roman Mediterranean culture. Yeah, that's what I think is really uh, so fascinating it, at this time in history, the uh, around the time of the Council of Chalcedon. From one perspective, somebody like uh, Pope Leo of Rome, he's a hero. But to the Coptics, he's all—he's like the bad guy of yeah. the story. Where Dioscorus to the Roman or Constantinopolitan Church is the bad guy, but to the Copts, he's the good guy. So you get this um, switch of antagonist protagonist in the story. At this point, I would say in the last ten years or so, and this is only very recent, there have been lots of scholarship who tries to like you know look at things through the the way they are without specifically looking at it from who's right and who's wrong and a theological point of view, which makes my job as a history podcaster a little bit easier. Uh, but like, yeah, for 1500 years, depending on who's writing the history, either Leo is a heretic and a bad guy uh, or Dioscorus is a heretic and a bad guy. The history went through this lens, uh, which is, you know, it's not, it's a complicated picture where, you know, there is no, like I like to say, there is no good guys and there's no bad guys. These were just guys trying to do the best for uh, what they saw as best for their government and for their church. And if you um, listen to I uh, one of my earlier episodes, I can't think of the episode number offhand, but I interviewed a modern bishop of the church that grew out of the Nestorian church, and you'll get an even different perspective yeah. on who's revered and who's not revered. It gets very complicated, and that's what I really love about this time period where I think a lot of people maybe write it off that it's just 
you know, Christians and versus pagans. And, and it's, there's a lot more to who, what a pagan is. There's a lot more to what a Christian is. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that you actually mentioned that. Uh, Cause you know, as far as I know, the, the Nestorian, what became out of the Nestorian church are essentially the only group who would consider Cyril not to be a, a revered figure. So like um, we're talking here as Cyril being a doctor of the church and um, a great theologian, but then someone else would completely take, you know, look at it from a completely different perspective where Cyril was a bad guy. He was a heretic and he introduced all these heresies to the church. So, you know, it's all, I don't want to say it's all a matter of perspective because I feel like, you know, as a history podcasters, our job is to dig through the bulimic and find the truth and try to present what we think is most likely have happened. But depending on, on one's perspective, you know, things can, can be a little bit different. This is not ancient history. To this day, there's people who have grown out of the tradition of Leo, the Roman Catholics, you have Eastern Orthodox who are still today. You still have cops today, you're, you know, who could be your neighbor, who there's a, I'm sure in any town people live in, there's a Coptic church and the Eastern Orthodox church, a Roman Catholic church. This is things that still matter in 2018 when we're uh, recording this. Yeah, I mean, for so many years, the Coptic Church was only in Egypt, but as we're speaking now, there's a Coptic Church in 270-something countries. So I'm sure wherever you're listening to this, there would be a Coptic Church somewhere near you. Well, I want to thank you so much for working with me for this collaboration. We worked together. This was a really great show. I mean, I think this is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had on um, uh, talking about these issues. Yeah, thank you for, for inviting me, Steve. Like I said, I loved being here. And, uh, you know, I look forward to more collaborations. Maybe we can get into Leo and Dioscorus from uh, two different perspectives. And I think that would be very interesting, too. Yeah, definitely. That sounds great. Um, if people want to learn about your show and where they can listen to it, where can they find it? The show is called History of the Copts Podcast. It is on iTunes, on Stitcher, and on SoundCloud. And if you have another app that you would like me to add to it, just reach out and I will add the podcast to it. As of recording this episode, we're about 29 episodes in, uh, and we went through from um, the annexation of Egypt by Rome up until the Council of Chalcedon. What happens next is about 200 years of um, very uh, like a fascinating story of interactions between the church in Constantinople and the church of Alexandria. And then after that, the conquest of the Arabs, where the podcast will take a different turn, where it looks um, in Egypt through the eyes of a Christian majority ruled by an Arab minority and the transition to what we see nowadays of um, a major of a Christian minority and a Muslim majority. And my podcast is the History of the Papacy podcast. You can find links to where um, all the different platforms to listen at my website, a2zhistorypage.com. That's A-T-O-Z or Z if you prefer, historypage.com. And my show is has detailed the history of Western Christianity and generally Christianity up to 
the 500s to this point AD. And now we're starting to focus in more on what's going on in Western Europe. Now with um, once the Roman Empire has fallen, there's a lot of intrigue just in what's going on in Rome. And you can imagine that there's a lot of intrigue and a lot of politics and a lot of history all over the Mediterranean world during the time from uh, time of Jesus all the way up until the Middle Ages. And that's the time period that I'm really fascinated in. But thank you for planning and collaborating with me on this, Jonathan, and I definitely hope to do it again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) 